0: From Is,
1: that
0: yeah. Is that better? Yeah, okay. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you to Perla for inviting me to speak today. Thank you, Les, to Perla for scheduling me to speak mm-hmm. after soon. But uh, thank you for the opportunity. Hopefully, I can share some of my uh, observations and insights from my more limited fieldwork in the Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. Uh, In view of the discussion in the Q&A this morning, I should highlight that I'm focusing today on the role and the impact of fieldwork as done in the camps by Western academic researchers specifically, and I'm not supporting to speak about Arab and Palestinian researchers, for which I apologize, but this is mostly my experience. There are three key questions I'd like to consider in the time I have, so... Firstly, as a historian, I'm interested in looking at how the historical background and the historical context of the refugee camps in Lebanon has affected and shaped the research interests there. Then, building on this and building to some extent on the previous papers we've heard this morning, I'd like to consider what the impact of this research is on the camp communities themselves. And thirdly, I'll wrap up by briefly considering a possible constructive ways forward. So how can we ensure that researchers engage positively and constructively with the camp communities in Lebanon? So considering each of these in turn, I will start with the significance of the historical context, which I flag up not only because I'm a historian, but also because I would argue that the camp's historical significance can actually go some way towards explaining the nature of their appeal to researchers. Uh, as we know, Lebanon is exceptional in many ways when it comes to the Palestinian refugee camps here. We heard about this in some detail from Allah this morning, I'll only recap it briefly. We're all aware that the camps in Lebanon, arguably more than anywhere else, were central to the Palestinian nationalist movement in its heyday, i.e. the period between the Fauda of the late 1960s and the PLO's ousting from Beirut in 1982. The camps were historically the largest uh, recruiting ground for the Fidain and the Palestinian nationalist organizations have used them as bases for their activities. So there's a huge historical significance to the camps here. Since 1982, the camps in Lebanon have of course become exceptional in a different way, experiencing probably the most extreme marginalization and poverty of any Arab host state. Such that Unrwa today reports that the highest rate of abject poverty in any of its fields, is actually found in the Palestinian camp in Lebanon, higher even than in Gaza. We may be surprised to hear. And when I interviewed the former UNRWA Commissioner General Filippo Grandi last year here in Beirut, he stated that outside the context of the Israeli occupation, and we might add since 2011 outside the context of the Syrian war, the biggest obstacles to Palestinian refugee rights can be found here in Lebanon. Finally, and probably most significantly for our purposes today, Lebanon is the only Arab host state where the majority of Palestinian refugees continue to live in the camps. So in Jordan, and in Syria before 2011, around a quarter of registered Palestinian refugees live in the camps. In Lebanon today, the figure is slightly more than 50%, quite a significant difference. And of course, the camps in Lebanon are undergoing additional pressure over the last five years because they've absorbed huge numbers of refugees from Syria. In terms of what this means for research, uh, I would argue that these elements of Lebanese exceptionalism, if we want to call it that, has to some degree been reflected in the state of research in the camps. Certainly since the 1980s, Western scholarship on the Palestinian refugee camps has focused more on those in Lebanon than on those in Syria or Jordan, or even really the West Bank and Gaza. In this way, research interest in the camps in Lebanon has actually increased in inverse proportion to Palestinian political power and influence in the country, as we heard from Mahmoud this morning. In other words, the camps have experienced the greatest interest from Western researchers when they've been at the nadir of their strength and power, which is something that hasn't gone unnoticed by the residents. And this has shaped the form that the research itself can take As the camp's appeal to Western researchers stems largely from their troubled histories and their marginalization, the resulting research tends to be centered around experiences that are usually alien to the researchers. By framing research in this way, we highlight the distance between the researcher and the refugees, we risk presenting the camp refugees as the other, and in doing so we risk perhaps inadvertently reinforcing their marginalization and their alienation in Western academic discourse. This in turn feeds into a setup is already characterised by structural inequalities. There's a clear disparity between most Western academic researchers and most Palestinian refugees in the camps in Lebanon when it comes to, of course, their political statuses, their legal statuses, their socio-economic positions, and their relationship to the camps themselves. Academic researchers who have Western passports and move freely in and out of the camps are at odds with stateless Palestinian refugees who are reliant on ID cards and travel documents in many cases and often beholden to restraints on their freedom of movement. Given that the very nature of Palestinian exile is defined by statelessness, this isn't a small point. In fact, the imbalance between the researcher's privilege and the camp refugee's powerlessness generates important questions about researchers' ethical responsibility when conducting fieldwork in the camp here I come to the main point I want to discuss today. Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, as we all know, lack many means of formal protection, leaving them at risk of exploitation by those in positions of power. This potentially includes academic researchers. Too often, particularly Western academic researchers, see their good intentions alone as a sufficient safeguard against this danger, rendering them exempt from the possibility of exploitation, or of being guilty of exploitation. So during my own field work in Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, I've observed the widespread absence of formal safeguards that are in place as a result of this complacency. I'll recap one example briefly because I'm aware of time constraints, uh, and it concerns Ein Halway camps, so proving uh, Mohammed's point from this morning that everything does centre around Shatila or Ain Halway. Actually, all of my examples come from Shatila and Ain Halway so I'm guilty as charged, but when I was in Ein in 2013, uh, to give this example, I observed a group of Western researchers interviewing a group of Palestinian refugee women about their life stories. These researchers did not provide the women with very much explanation or any explanation of the purpose of the interviews. It was really unclear whether the women knew how and where their words were going to be reproduced, Certainly there was no discussion about seeking the women's approval of any wording or any potential publications. Now, this is only one example, but we're all aware it's quite standard practice in the camp. The reason it's significant is because this is completely at odds with what's expected of us as academic researchers when we interview anyone else. So, if as an academic researcher you go to interview a politician, any kind of official another academic, an institutional representative, etc., etc., you are expected very strongly to uh, get their consent, to keep them in the loop about publications, to let them know how you are quoting them and using their words and testimonies as evidence. So it seems that it's only the accounts and testimonies of the powerless and vulnerable that are exempt from this otherwise ironclad need for checks and approvals. And this arrangement, I would argue, engenders questions not only of misrepresentation, or the potential for misrepresentation, but also of consent. As we heard first thing this morning, these problems are worsened and multiplied by language barriers. So the majority of Western researchers in the camps, myself included, are not native Arabic speakers. Many do not know the language well enough to carry out research directly, or to deliver research papers at conferences in the language. As a result, they rely on translators and interpreters, which exacerbates the potential for misunderstanding and misrepresentation. But more seriously, many Western researchers rely on a single translator, and they do not use mechanisms to double-check or to confirm the single translator's interpretation of what's been said. The language problem can be particularly pronounced, I would argue, when it comes to researching the Nakba. As we have a situation today where the number of direct NAXP survivors dwindles, researchers are tending to zone in on those who remain able and willing to recollect their testimonies from 1948. Many, although not all of this generation, will speak in Arabic or speak only in Arabic and have to see their words and their memories translated into alien languages without being able to verify them. The biggest concern comes from the fact that this is not always explained or examined and the widespread lack of follow-up and safeguards on the part of researchers only worsens the problem. At this point, I might add that this is not the only problem that is particularly acute when it comes to researching the Nakba. Uh, as we are all aware, the diminishing number of Nakba survivors means that it is common practice for visiting researchers in the camps to go to the homes of the same small number of people. So, few who have gone to Virgil Barajni camp, for example, will be unfamiliar with uh, Umm Aziz. I considered doing a straw poll at this point, but I thought it might backfire and undermine my argument. Uh, Umm Aziz came to Lebanon from Palestine during the Nakba. She lost many of her family, her husband and her sons, in 1982. Her story is told repeatedly to researchers and journalists from across the world. If you do a quick Google search in English for Um Aziz Burjel you will generate a whole range of international blogs, news reports and academic articles on a range of subjects, all of them using her story as the core of their evidence. Now, this intense and quite repetitive focus on particular individuals obviously creates academic problems in terms of our use of evidence, but it also creates ethical problems. We face the aforementioned questions of consent and potential misrepresentation But maybe, particularly for those of us who consider ourselves supporters of the Palestinian cause, we might grapple with the virtue of asking an elderly woman to continually recall and express and articulate the most painful and traumatic memories of her life for our own professional benefit. The Academy's efforts to address these concerns, certainly in the West, are too often limited and tokenistic. So while methodological discussions about fieldwork almost always include some consideration of ethical dimensions, too often this consideration is theoretical and it's abstract. It's very rarely, if ever, driven by engagement from the voices with the communities themselves. So the University of London is one of the foremost international institutions for researching the Middle East, but it provides a clear example of this very limited approach. Uh, Doctoral students and researchers are required to submit a guarantee before they do fieldwork that their research will not breach the university's ethical guidelines and that they will take every measure possible to minimise the chance that their fieldwork will create a negative impact on the camp communities. This is better than nothing, we might say, but it's very limited. It's entirely self-assessed. It's not verified by anyone with expertise in that particular field. And perhaps most importantly, this check is carried out entirely before the research is done. You complete the form, you go off and do your fieldwork, that's it. You don't follow up during the fieldwork, and you don't follow up after the fieldwork is completed. These failings, or these flaws, when it comes to research in the camps, are not merely abstract. They can have serious repercussions on the ground, as you've heard of course, we find an effective case study of this in the second of the two camps that get researched, Shatila. Shatila is probably more researched than all other Palestinian camps in Lebanon combined, although there's certainly evidence to suggest that. Uh, And as a result, we're seeing increasing mistrust and suspicion and cynicism among many of the camp community there towards academic researchers. Uh, The contention that the Shatila community has become over-researched and that the residents are unhappy with the current state of research there would chime with my own experience in the camp. On my repeated visit to Shatila over the last three years, I found that the residents are both very well versed in research practices and in academic trends, and they're also very frustrated with the apparent futility of this research these kinds of grievances are exacerbated by what I referred to earlier as the structural disparity between the refugees and the researchers, whereby research projects benefit the latter's careers while leaving the former living in the same conditions, something we've heard about from other speakers as well. Uh, When I was in Shatila in 2014, I met an Irish researcher recording interviews with refugees and then uploading the videos to YouTube. Uh, Now, Many of the older interviewees did not understand what was going on to happen with these videos. The younger ones did, but didn't have much of a say in it beyond the option of just refusing to give an interview at all. And probably most alarmingly, some of the interviewees were under 16 and were having their testimonies beamed around the world, quite often saying things that may come back to haunt them in future years. Now this YouTube account belonged to the researcher solely, so there was no chance of the interviewees being able to control and manage how they're now being depicted for international viewing. And it's practices like these that give rise to the contention that uh, fieldwork in the camps can be ultimately exploitative. Okay. So, to wrap up, uh, I'd like to look briefly at how we can find constructive ways forward for research in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon. I have a few minutes to solve this question. Um, as a starting point, it seems that the, the nature of these problems or of these grievances are significant enough that merely tweaking our approaches or tweaking our methodology as researchers may not be sufficient. Instead, we really need to critically examine the wider context in which research functions and the purpose it ultimately serves. If one thing is clear from the histories of the Palestinian camps in Lebanon, it is that the refugees are not merely passive victims of fate. As far as possible, they seize the chance to be active agents of their own destiny. So treating Palestinian camp refugees as submissive research objects is not only offensive, but it's actually quite inconsistent with their lived history and their experiences. Researchers in the West should be encouraged to respond to the refugee's agency not as a problem, but rather as an opportunity. In fact, many refugees have their own ideas about how research should be directed, and they express frustration that their opinions on the matter are disregarded. So when I spent time in the camps around Beirut in 2015, I was asking refugees about the history of UNRWA services. They did not want to talk to me about the history of UNRWA services. Quite rightly, they wanted to talk about UNRWA cuts happening right now, not whatever academic topic was in vogue in London. What these requests or these demands do indicate is that there is fertile ground for us as researchers to reconceptualise how our projects in the camps can be developed. Uh, in fact, research could benefit greatly from more direct partnerships between the researchers and the camp communities. Refugees need not be limited merely to working as fixers or to assisting researchers as guides and translators. They can directly contribute their own knowledge and experience about what is needed to produce successful, useful and constructive research in the camp. With so many camp residents well versed in research practices and academia, Researchers will be well advised, in fact, to look at the possibility of developing some kind of working group or multiple working groups with camp refugees to examine the future and the state of research in depth. This way, we deliberately make the camp refugees and the camp communities an integral part of the research process, and we try to ensure that research projects are devised with a view to considering what their impact will be on the communities, rather than simply treating the communities as a blank object. We can also use the refugees' local knowledge as a resource rather than uh, something to be moulded or exploited according to our predetermined ideas. At the moment, research trends in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon are too often determined by academic fashions and themes in the West, rather than by developments inside the camps and the concerns of the refugees themselves. A more constructive and engaged approach would seek the refugees' input in order to identify emerging changes in the camps and determine research topics accordingly. In this way, the value of future academic research can go hand in hand with respecting and promoting the agency of the camp communities themselves. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. the third Anahid أنا هيد أستاذة في قسم معلم الاجتماع في الجامعة الأمريكية في بيروت عندها كتاب جديد صدر عن كولومبيا عنوان الفلسطينيون في سوريا شكرا جديا <تصفيق> so, حابة أبدأ اليوم ما... بتقديم شكر لبرلا لتنظيم الورشة المهمة ولدعوتي للمشاركة وأطرح سؤال لإلنا كلنا كفلسطينيين وكعاملين في مؤسسات فلسطينية إنه ليش ليش أفان وللمتضامنين معنا والبقية اللي هون إنه بس لا إنه هاي الف...